Um, today is Rav Lichtenstein's yard site, so it's only appropriate that we discuss his Torah and the way he changed so many of our lives, either directly or indirectly. Um, and sometimes um, a book is published, and it's such a paradigm shift that it renders everything beforehand a little bit obsolete. The Ramah was preparing his magnum opus, and then the Shulchan Aruch, the Yosef Cairo, beat him to it. So in a great act of heroism, instead of authoring an autonomous book, he wrote emendations. He wrote a tablecloth to cover the table that Yosef Cairo had published. So I thought it was appropriate to speak about not just Rav Lichtenstein's Torah. Most people, when you think about Rav Aaron, it's the Torah and the Shiurim and the leadership and the training and the pedagogy. But who was he as a Zionist? And how did he process this new world that we live in, this new reality that we navigate? So I prepared a shear. And then on my way out to the airport, I was handed this. This is the galleys of a sefer that's being published today in Israel. It's called B'Shuv Chalitzion, and it is a collection of about 25 to 30 sichot of Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amital on Yom Yushalayim and Yom Matzmot. <laughs> so everything I say today is pre-publication of the book. I started to read it on the plane. It's actually riveting. So it's available through the Yeshiva office. That's not why I came today to hawk the Sefer and the commission. But I feel a little bit odd delivering a shear without having completely uh, perused the Sefer and incorporated it. But I hope that some of the ideas that I've called from my own experiences and from the Sichot that I heard, some of which may be included in this, some of which may not be included, uh, hopefully some of them will come through. But if when you purchase the Sefer there are some ideas, certainly if they're contradictory, I defer to the Sefer. But even if there are deficiencies, it's because I didn't get a chance to read the Sefer. Um, a few years before Rav Lichtenstein's Petira, he received the Israel Prize. And that is the highest non-military award in the country. And in his very cute way, when he was interviewed, he said, who would have thought I was such a big Zionist and I was so responsible? Because I don't think people saw him that way. That's not the natural association. And yet, if you take a few steps back, his contribution to the Zionist enterprise, just simply by positioning the yeshiva in, in, in the gush, not that he positioned it, but certainly the yeshiva wouldn't be what it became without his presence there. And to a degree, the radial impact upon the gush area from the yeshiva, and that that has become such a successful settlement block, is in part due to Rav Lichtenstein's influence. So it was very cute to see Rav Lichtenstein receiving the Israel Prize and wondering how did a boy from, uh, from Washington Heights who lived in Rabbi Soloveitchik's year all of a sudden become a major Zionist figure. I'll discuss that a little bit later, how Rav Lichtenstein, in my opinion, impacted the Israeli world, something which I think Americans are not sufficiently sensitive to. But let's first discuss a different, a different issue. How did he process Zionism? How did he process this experience? What I mean is as follows. We are in a brave new world. We are experiencing events, um, phenomena, and we have absolutely no tradition for navigating or processing these events. By definition, Gula is a new, fresh, shift in history, HaKadosh Baruch Hu overhauls the past and refashions it, and we are left looking for prisms and lenses through which to process this experience. We've returned to our land. Our sovereignty has been restored. We're resettling our peoplehood. Uh, the Jewish people are, are rising meteorically. The, the, the agricultural yields, the augmentation of Torah, the change in just in the mitzvahs that we're encountering, That we, these mitzvahs that had been lost to history. This is the Shemitah year in Israel, and, and, and Trumos and Maestros, and how do you process these changes? The halacha areas are a little bit easier because there are, there are not overwhelming precedents, but there are enough svarim written about Shemitah and Yovel. There's enough of a tradition. But what about the experience of redemption proper? 
So I believe our natural fallback, our natural lens, is the world of prophecy, the world of Tanakh. Judaism views history not as open-ended and linear, but as cyclical. We reclaim the past, what happened before will happen again. Prophecy clues us into the future. So we look back to the book of Tanakh for general clues about general direction, general instruction, reinforcement, conviction, confidence towards facing both the, the intoxication and the giddiness of Gula, as well as the challenges that Gula poses. It isn't a, it isn't a paved road. There are obstacles, there are frustrations, there are questions. So we look back to the world of Tanakh, and I believe that's in part why there's been a revival in Tanakh study. It isn't just a sense of returning to our land, and let's return to the book of our land. It isn't just historical, but I think it is a, it, it, it is a religious desire to, to see in this book signposts or guidelines for the future. And many people in Eretz Yisrael employ Tanakh as a template for current redemptive events. Um, I think uh, I'll quote Rav Amital slightly here and there, but I think Rav Amital taught us that art and that skill. He didn't just he, he displayed it. I'm very drawn to it personally. There are very significant dangers, which I'll mention in a moment. I think to a degree, one of the differences, I was in a community over Shabbos, and there was a conversation, an open conversation in the afternoon. And one of the questions were, what's the difference between the Dati Lumi community and the Chardal community? Or as they're identified in Israel, these are actually the terms people use. You're either a Gushnik or you're a Kavnik. And a Gushnik refers to a brand of yeshivas, a stream of yeshivas that are influenced by the Gush Yeshiva, Gush, Maleadumi, Matniel, Yerucham. Or Kavnik, these are yeshivas that are more in line with that one binary sense of Rav Kook's ideology. And one of the differences I sense is, is there is a excessive politicalization of, of prophecy or prophesization of politics. I remember my son was, a couple of years ago, was in a Gavati unit, and he spent Shabbos in his army base, and he was visited by a rabbi from a Kavnik yeshiva who was visiting the Talmudim that he was serving with in his Gavati unit. So I asked my son, who learned in Yerucham, who is more or less educated in the Gush approach, I said, David, tell me, did you enjoy the Rebbe that came from the yeshiva? I forget what yeshiva was, Ramat Gan, or I forget what one of the Kavnik yeshivas. He says, Abba, it was very interesting because it was very, very, it was very, um, how should I say? He, he, he quoted Tanakh to help us understand the current challenges of Israel. I said, well, that sounds very plausible. I would do the same. And I said, but Abba, you don't understand. He quoted Tanakh, Achashverosh was Trump. And Haman was, there was, there was a, a, an attempt to trace, to connect dots in a very specific fashion, which I think we feel very uncomfortable with. But we all do look to Tanakh for general guidance. Rav Lichtenstein did not, and that wasn't his lens. And I'll prove it to you through three examples. But to help you better appreciate why I think he grounded our Zionism and he grounded our redemptive experience, I think he never articulated this list. He had lists, obviously, because when he would speak, his speeches were always lengthy, and the speeches were always, I like to tell people, well, during the summer, because on an average Friday night, he would speak for an hour and a half. And during the summer, we'd make Yiddish at 10 o'clock at night. My wife would wait for us. I'd come home and make Yiddish. And my wife would say, what do we have to speak about tonight? And I said, he said that Moshe was a good person. <laughs> and my wife looked at me and said, it took him an hour and a half to say that. But everything was panoramic. Everything, Rav Lichtenstein was never just telescopic or, 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 or he never, Rav Amital issued very direct, powerful statements. I think in the end, Rav Lichtenstein's genius was not any particular statement. He's very unquotable. There's no one line 
that just puts your head on a swivel and revolutionizes your consciousness. But just the entire system was so broad. Everything was focusing out and zooming back and looking at the entire system. And what does good mean? And what did good mean in Gan Eden? And what are the challenges of good? And what are the advantages? And how could you turn? And then before, you know, it took him an hour to get to the point. And the point may have been very, very minute, but it was the system. It was building our entire orientation every time he spoke about a particular issue. It was, it was an entire building. And he would list us, but I, I never remember him listing the dangers of redemption, but they came up from time to time. As I'll tell us, source number, um, um, source number two. I'll get back to source number one. Bikesh Yaakov, legales esakates, minestalik mimenu shechina. That Yaakov already designed to provide a very specific roadmap for redemption. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu withdrew it, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu refused. And similar, similar statements are made about Daniel. Remember, Yaakov and Daniel are both living at historical scenes, at historical junctures. So Yaakov is about to start the first Galos. Daniel is about to launch, not launch personally, but to experience the launch of the second Galos. So there's a desire to provide the light at the end of the tunnel. When will this end? How will this end? How will we return? And in each case, they receive, in Yaakov's instance, a Kodesh Baruch who uh, restrains him. And in Daniel's case, is an actual direct prophecy for restraint. The dangers of prophetic... Um, of, of, of prophetic orientation are, of course, practically, when you raise expectations which aren't met, it leads to depression, it leads to frustration. We all know, the, of course, the, the most tragic example of the 17th century, Shabtai Tzvi, at least half of the Jewish population, close to half, sells off their possessions, moves to Israel, of course, as he is, um, as he is repudiated and uh, converts to Islam, so it leads to massive, massive depression and, and, and national torpor, and, and it creates a very, very, uh, probably one of the most difficult centuries. If you, it's hard to rank the recent exile. It was 1900 years, it was very, very difficult. But if you had to rank one of the worst decades, one of the worst centuries of the previous exile, it was probably 17th, 18th century. And in large measure because of the, the strife which, which emerged from the Shabtai Tzvi's episode. So when expectations are raised and they're not met, it leads to frustration. But it's not just the practical issue of dash expectations. It's also that prophetic fever or messianic fever can lead to reckless behavior. And uh, the B'nai Ephraim are, are an example of people who are so desirous for for redemption, that they overshot the mark and they accelerated the process and they acted recklessly. Reb would speak to us about that regarding the Ma'apilim and Parsha Shlach, who are just so enthusiastic, so covetous of an opportunity to repair their failure and to, to, to stream Territ Yisrael prematurely, which at that point was prematurely. So it's reckless behavior. And it's not just the reckless behavior, but it's also, it creates a sense of overconfidence. Geula is a very, very dangerous process because it partners a human being with a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and it shifts the delicate balance between Yeras Hashem and Avas Hashem. We live with this delicate sense of one who feel close to Kodesh Baruch Hu, treat him as uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to say for Rosh Hashanah as well. As, uh, we want to treat him as, as someone that we feel partnered with, and then there's the Yeras mind that we don't know him and we can't understand him, and his ways are mysterious to us, and lo And throughout Jewish history, these two these two interfaces of our relationship with the Kodesh Baruch are always delicately calibrated. And to a degree, Hasidus tried to recalibrate the world of Abbas Hashem in a, in a world of, that was too dark and too bleak and too much distance and too much mystery. And they introduced an intimacy with the Kodesh Baruch that had been 
that had that had waned, that had diminished, and they restored some of the balance between distance and closest to Kaddish Baruch But Geula can potentially upset that very delicate balance, and you feel too overconfident. And Hakadosh Baruch Hu is converted from Melech Malchei Amlachim Narasihilos into Achi Achi is my brother, he's my partner, and and. Um, there are many, many, part of the crisis that we're facing in the religious Zionist world in Israel is that there are a lot of 35-year-olds and 40-year-olds who are no longer classically religious. In Eretz Yisrael, you have to use the word classically religious because the boundaries aren't as binary as they are here. It's very, very clear. You're either Dati, you're not Dati, you're Orthodox, you're not Orthodox. In Eretz Yisrael, the Orthodox world, for better or for worse, is more of a spectrum and moving a cursor. And how much of Orthodox life do you accept? Do you not accept? I'm not condoning it. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just describing it. But there are many, many 35, 40-year-olds who are no longer classically or com- completely religious or orthodoxly religious. And a lot of them trace it to the events of 2006. In 2006, when we withdrew from Aza, so there was a range of Datim Omi Rabbanim who guaranteed, guaranteed, this will not happen. We cannot... Imagine a world in which a Kurdish Baruch would allow 8,000 Jews to be um, forcibly removed from their homes. And they issued a statement which to me still still reverberates in my consciousness. They said three words. Hayo, lo It can't happen. And what happened? We woke up one morning and it happened. So as an adult, we had the processors to understand and comprehend this, this dissonance. But teenagers don't have such complex processors. And when their rabbis convince them that this is impossible and then it turns out the tragedy befalls us, a lot of people um, a lot of people um, became distrustful of rabbinic authority, distrustful of faith. And uh, to me it was, it was unfathomable that 70 or 80 years after the Holocaust, 70 or 80 years after Kodesh Baruch Hu allowed a tragedy of that magnitude to occur, that Rabbanim would feel so confident and banking on the will of Hashem and guaranteeing, where did this come from? In the Haredi world, and they had their own faults in their response to the disengagement from Asa. But when they finally woke up and they finally wrote letters and they finally gathered the troops to try to protest the withdrawal from Asa, the tonality was completely different. We don't know the ways of Hashem. We don't know why they say Sarah is occurring and who is to know the Darche Hashem Again, they're not challenged by the experience of Geula because they're still living in 1848 or in 17th. So they don't have that challenge. But for our community, this is a very, very stiff challenge with many, many dangers, which is, of course, why Chazal was so careful, source number four, so we went to quote some sources to provide some backdrop. Um, source number four, This is why Chazal was so opposed to people who try to predict the future. Their bones should rot. Their bones should decay. So Chazal were very harsh in their perspectives of people who are machash vekitzim. So I think these were the dangers that Rav Lichtenstein helped us avoid. And he helped us avoid this through the following device. Rav Lichtenstein's lens for processing the, the experiences in Israel, the Zionism in Israel, was not prophetic. His lens was, in classic Brisker style, halachic. And I'll cite three or four examples. Now, part of it was because he was just a Brisker. And Briskers always try to apply halachic models to their experiences, whether they, whether they fit or don't fit. That's, the, that's their mental constructs. But I think part of it because it grounded us. So let me describe three examples where I think everyone in this room, their immediate go-to, their immediate response would have been prophetic, uh, uh, 
And Rabbi Chassin completely avoided, sidestepped the issue entirely, and his perspective was based on halacha considerations. So, for example, in 1996 and 1997, right in the heat of the Oslo Accords, so right around Hanukkah time is when the Israeli government relinquished military control over Beit Lechem and over Hebron. I think you're probably in Yeshiva at that time. It was right around Hanukkah, and there was a lot of excitement in Yeshiva, and the band had been practicing for weeks, and life in Yeshiva is pretty boring. You know, don't tell your children this. <laughs> Monday is like Tuesday, Tuesday is like Wednesday. When you call your son and say, how's Yeshiva? Good. A, he's a teenager. He doesn't have to say more than two words. <laughs> Second of all, there's really not much to describe. It's the same Seder. It's the same event. It's the same food. So when a party happens, when a Yeshiva happens, it's a major event. It's not just another event. <laughs> Finally, the routine is shattered. Finally, there's something to dance for and to enjoy. Not that Torah isn't enjoyable. So we were all excited about the Masiba, and here we were facing this very, very difficult impasse. So it wasn't so much the decision as much as how Rav Lichtenstein framed the decision. The yeshiva decided to conduct the Masiba, but I think without dancing, without instruments, uh, with some compromise position, which was appropriate. But how did Rav Lichtenstein frame the experience? So ask yourself that question. How would you frame it? What part of Tanakh would you quote? What experiences would you quote? Let's say the partial Geula of Chizkiah Melech, the rescue of Yushalayim, the fall of the north, or the return of Ezra and Nehemiah, where it was incomplete and was frustration along with sadness, but celebration and gratification. Where would you turn to? you turn to a section in Tanakh. Rav Lichtenstein delivered at the Masiba, where we're all sitting there waiting to eat our schnitzel, a one-hour sheer klali about two halachic concepts. What are the two halachic concepts? There's one halachic concept known as vitor. Vitor means unilateral abnegation. I just unilaterally walk away, let's say I'm a shutaf, and I unilaterally uh, divest my own portion. You can use the land, even though you can't get enough from me. And, Abivater, I completely, completely uh, um, forfeit and waive my rights. Then there's another sugya called pshara, where two people have halachic conflict, and instead of allowing Beistin to adjudicate, it's like extra legal arbitration. Let's reach some accommodation. You take half, I'll take half, you take some, the Gemara and Sanhedrin. Now keep in mind, he didn't just reference these issues, he spent an hour and 15 minutes delving into the Ritva and into the Rashba, you felt as if this was a Shir Kali. I just landed in the middle of the Masiba. I was expecting a speech, and it was a Shir Kali. And he cautioned us to relate to this withdrawal from Hebron, from Beit Lechem, through the lenses of Pshara, not through the lenses of Vitor. Vitor means, I don't care, I give up, I'm not interested in the land anymore, I'll walk away. As opposed to a Pshara, where two sides reach mutual accommodation, Mutual understanding, you have your needs, we have our needs. How can we find some method to reconcile these conflicting interests while there's still invested interest on, on behalf of both parties in the issue that's being divided or the issue that's being compromised? And then after we finished that sheer call, he said, but then there's another issue. It's not just how you see the experience, or whether you view it as Vitor or view it as Pshara, but what will happen down the line? Maybe you'll forget about Eretz Yisrael. Maybe you'll forget about, which is, of course, a very legitimate concern. So we quoted the mission of us to us. The mission talks about forgetting Torah. So the Gemara, the mission says, 
So the Mishnah says, Hayitachen, that someone that forgets Torah is Chayv Misa. So the Gemara's Mishnah says, Enul Chayv Atshi Yasir Milivah. If you actively forget, which of course is itself a conundrum, how do you actively forget something? But if you take measures to forget something. So Luchasim told us that as the years cycle on, try not to forget your love for Beit Lechem and try not to forget your love of Hebron. He didn't give us any tips of how not to forget something, but there was not one Pasuk, not one Parak in Tanakh, there was not one prophetic moment. And we had a Shir Klali, one Vitor versus Pshara, and that was the pip, that was the rivet. He riveted us to think in terms of halachic models and halachic constructs rather than prophetic imagery. The second moment that that's, um, I recall is the 50th year of the state of Israel. 50th year of the state of Israel. You can imagine the euphoria. You can imagine the energy. You can imagine the celebration. We're getting close to the 75th year. I imagine it'll be very similar. This was not a regular Yom HaTzmoh. This was major events and fireworks and parades and so what did Rehlechensin speak about on the 50th year of Medina Yisrael at the Mesibah, Yom Atzmod, another Shir Klal, about Yovel. And he deconstructed Yovel, but it wasn't metaphoric. What is Yovel mean metaphorically and how? He deconstructed Yovel into its constituent halachic elements. There's the Shofar, the Shechur Avadim, the Sachzar Karka. And he described the challenges of living in Eretz Yisrael. We have to blow the Shofar in Yovel, and challenge people to higher religious ground, and we have to read the Shachar Avadim and maintain a socially egalitarian and balanced uh, community. And, and he thrust us into the world of Yovel rather than moving towards a more prophetic inclination. Um, the third part that I remember was, I think I saw this in an article, I wasn't there, but at some point he once shared with us his recollections. He, he once spoke to the Bnei Chosarets in the late 80s about his own experiences of Aliyah. And we'll talk about this maybe a little bit later. And someone asked him, or he told us, how did he experience in 1948? Someone asked him, what did he feel like in 1948? So I'm going to ask yourself that question. If you can go back to a time machine and experience 1948, what would you feel? What part of Torah would you... I was saying Halal today, and it's, it's the Halal of Rosh Chodesh Iyar is the most preclimactic Halal in the world. <laughs> you can't say Halal to Rosh Chodesh Iyar without thinking about, hey, I'm already, my mind's racing. Mesa Shem Haisa Zos. I think it's unfair to Rosh Chodesh Iyar. <laughs> How could you not think about these Sukkim in their historical resonance? Rebbe said that when he was young, he remembers that he recited and thought of Tehillim Parachafes. Are you ready for Tehillim Parachafes? If you don't know it, if you're not familiar, just think Yom Kippur. <laughs> this is Yom Kippur. It's actually, it's a Purim. It's a, it's a Purim reference, but it sounds a lot like Yom Kippur. source number nine, David. Keli, Keli, Please, Hashem, answer. You have been my support system. Now, of course, it's relevant because many people who lived through 1948, we have the luxury of looking at 1948 in the rearview mirror and celebrating the joy and the acceleration and the, and the, and the, the national celebration. People who lived through 48, this was life and death. This was great fear, especially 67. Rabbi Talbot told us what happened in 67. They sent women and children home from Israel, back to England, back to America. That's how frightening it was. They were digging mass graves. And the War of Independence had that same feel. But this is not Rav Lichtenstein as an eight, as in 1948 speaking. This is where Lichtenstein speaking in, in the late 80s, early 90s, looking at 48 retrospectively. And his retrospective vision after the state of Israel has already been established, it's already consolidated, it's already secure. His, his memory milestone is Parachaf Beis in Tehillim. 
rather than the celebratory passages of Tanakh. So that, to me, was his major way of grounding. I think if you ask me to take a few steps back, what were Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amital's joint contribution to religious Zionism? They created a grounded Zionism, a grounded redemptive experience. Rav Amital in his manner, Rav Lichtenstein in his manner, and it's very different from the Zionism that I think Rav Kuk's Tamidim were brewing and were advancing. And Rav Lichtenstein's way of grounding was I almost never heard him speak through the lenses of Tanakh. Now, I hope I've proven it to you, but if I haven't, I will let Rav Lichtenstein himself prove it to you. Okay, so I have, an, I have a card of my ace in the hole. I'll share with you two conversations that took place 50 years apart in two totally different settings with two totally different people, but the similarities are absolutely eerie. One conversation took place between Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Huttner in 1962. One conversation took place between Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Sabato around 2012. There could be two different, two people more different, two people which we all would greatly respect and admire, two people more different than Rav Huttner and Rav Sabato. And they're totally different conversations, but they end up in the same conclusion. So let's start with Rav Huttner. Rav Lichtenstein records, and the final, final page, I'm sorry, it's a little bit out of order, but the final page. Rav Lichtenstein is in Israel in 1962, and he's visiting his Rebbe, Rav Huttner. And Rav Huttner asks him, what does he think about Eretz Yisrael? Back page. One day, I went to see Mori Virabi Rav Huttner. He used to spend summers in Israel. He had attachment to Israel. He had learned in Yeshiva's Hebron when he was in Hebron. The back page. Close the, the pamphlet. I'm sorry. It came out a little bit backwards here. It's on the back page of the final page, back side. Okay. He began to ask me, what are my impressions? What do I see here? What do I feel? So Rav Lichtenstein lifts his bucket list of what he sees in Eretz Yisrael. More mitzvahs, a more consolidated Jewish community. And, and Ravon would share with us, I just quoted a few sources, if you want to turn back to the first page, the famous Ramban, he would quote for us that mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael are authentic, and mitzvahs in Chutzlaretz are just practice runs that will remain familiar. Source number 12, if you want to take a look, he quoted this Gemara often to us, why was Moshe Rabbeinu so desirous to enter Eretz Yisrael? Because he could perform more mitzvahs. Um, Rav Lichtenstein spoke often about the attention that Hashem places towards Eretz Yisrael. So it's number 15, Eretz Yisrael. Mashke osa hakadosh baruch hu biatzma v'chol haolam ayde shliach. Vaselavechik used to say that lack of rainfall in Eretz Yisrael is different than any other national crisis. Any other national crisis is an ace tzara. But lack of rainfall in Eretz Yisrael, the Rav called Hester Panim. Because the Kodesh Baruch is the personal gardener of Eretz Yisrael. When there's a rainfall, then Hashem is delivering a message, not just that there is the, some punishment you deserve or some crisis you have to overcome, but that I'm turning my attention away from Eretz Yisrael. So Hashem's attention is in Eretz Yisrael. There's greater opportunity for mitzvahs, as Moshe Rabbeinu desired. Um, Rebbe Lechensin spoke about the, the famous Rambam, that we can only follow the calendar that Shmuel HaKatan developed. Why is today Rosh Chodesh? Because Shmuel HaKatan developed the calendar. But after all, Rosh Chodesh has to be determined by a Sanhedrin. And we don't really have a Sanhedrin, but we have a virtual Sanhedrin because Jews still live in Yerushalayim. And the Rambam writes that if at any point there would not be a Jewish community in Yerushalayim, that notion of a virtual Sanhedrin would shrivel, and our entire system of Rosh Chodesh would, uh, would, would dissipate, would vanish. So Rav Aaron listed all these issues to Rav Huttner. Augmentation of mitzvahs, greater attention of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the epicenter of Jewish history, the source of a virtual Sanhedrin. So now let's go back to the conversation. So 
So he began to ask me, what are my impressions? What do I see here? I discussed with him the vitality of Jewish life and the sense of total community, as opposed to the diaspora, where one's life is more fragmented. So Rafutner responds, you could have had that in Eastern Europe. Don't tell me about the vitality and the concentration of Jewish life. You could have had that in the Shtefa. So then Rabbi Lichten said, then I said, I think there's a broader range of application of halacha, more mitzvahs. In America, rabbinical courts handle ritual law. Here, rabbinical courts handle vinamamnis. So Rafutner said, he said you could have seen that in Eastern Europe and North Africa as well, where there was autonomy for the Jewish courts. I tried, Ravaran writes, to get him to elaborate. And finally, Rafutner exclaims to Rav Lichtenstein, here's Rafutner speaking, at least Ravaran quoting him, why don't you mention the uniqueness of being in Eretz Yisrael? Doesn't have to be translated through mitzvahs, through greater judicial autonomy. You're just in Eretz Yisrael. So listen to Ravaran's. You'll hear Rav Lichtenstein's voice in his next lines. Look at the last two lines of that paragraph. I walked out of there like a beaten dog. Noticing the Rav Lichtenstein had this cute way of coming up with these odd expressions that no one used anymore. They're absolutely, it's just very, the sarcophagus. So you always have these expressions that had become, I mean, remember we were learning, we were learning the Dharam one year, and the first Ron talks about um, articulating a nether in an antiquated language. So Rav Lichtenstein actually, and she, this actually happened, said, let's say I'm the only person who still speaks Anglo-Saxon. We were all nodding our heads. <laughs> That's not hypothetical. <laughs> that may actually be true. So, and this cute way of, of, of quoting these, these very, very strange terms that made sense. So this is the first conversation in 1962 where Futner just can't get Rav Lichtenstein to break out of the halachic shell of more mitzvahs and tester upon him. As if Rav Lichtenstein is in the rupture and he's quoting this year and this brisker alumnus and this approach, Rav Lichtenstein says, and it, 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 it suits Rav Lichtenstein, he just inherits his role. It doesn't have to be an answer to that question. Okay, fast forward to around 2012. This is even more fascinating. Those who haven't seen the Sefer in Mevakshe Ponecha, I strongly, strongly recommend it as a primer to Reb Lichtenstein. Reb Lichtenstein's writings are very oblique. Those who have the schus to sit through the two-hour marathons have trained their minds to read Reb Lichtenstein's writing. It's very, very complex, very leveled. Most people who haven't had training, they give up after two, three pages. It's, it's just it's a different type of language almost. And if your mind has been trained to read it, it's easier to read. But this is Rav Sabato interviewing Rav Lichtenstein. So they're Rav Lichtenstein-type sound bites. They're not three lines, but they're a page or two. So if you want an entree into the mind of Rav Lichtenstein about religion and about such, it's a beautiful sefer, in part because it's Rav Sabato also. It's, just, it's an incredible sefer to hear those two voices. It's Mavakshi Panacha in English, seeking your presence. So they're describing and discussing Gula. And at this point, Rav Sabato essentially corners Rav Lichtenstein. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a page that begins with Nesabat. He says, he spoke about seizing the staff of history, about leading Jewish people historically. He mentioned the fact that the establishment of the state was the best diplomatic move. It is the realization of dreams of generations. So he reviews how Rav Lichtenstein processed Zionism. Then Rav Sabata writes, paragraph two, but it's clear that Rav Cook's followers see the establishment of the independent Israel as more than just a diplomatic arrangement. They see it as a historical event. It realizes the vision of the prophets. It's a prophetic event. And now Rav Sabato corners Rav Lichtenstein. This is a great chess move. Okay? It's like they're playing chess. Even your teacher and mentor, Rav Soloveitchik, wrote about this in his essay, Koldo Didofek. He spoke of six heavenly knocks. So now Rav Sabato was challenging Rav Lichtenstein. Your Rebbe himself wrote Koldo Didofek. And you don't see any prophetic resonance or any prophetic consequence. So I have to apologize. Listen to Rav Aaron's response. 
Varn says, I'll read it to you in a moment. Yeah, he didn't mean it. Rosh didn't really mean Kol It was a period piece. He was very excited after the Six-Day War. He wrote a nice essay. It's just amazing. I don't know to what degree Kodododofeg reflects the Rav's approach throughout his life. Kodododofeg was a successful work, but it reflects a certain spirit. Things that were said on Israel's Independence Day. Now, by the way, this, this isn't the first time that Rav Lichtenstein disagreed with Rav Soloveitchik. It was, it was fascinating to attend Rav Lichtenstein's Shira Monisha Halacha and Rav Lichtenstein's Shira on the photo of Rav Soloveitchik, because generally, when Rav Lichtenstein felt the Rav Soloveitchik was becoming too brisker, we felt he was retrieving us into a, into a more not normal, but a more balanced approach. I remember when he quoted the Rav, quoting Rav Moshe Soloveitchik, who was opposed to some of the artificial, emotional experiences surrounding halacha, and Moshe Soloveitchik described the scene in Brisk where basically the Balkia was holding the shofar and crying and kissing the shofar and saying to Helen and getting ready to blow shofar, and Moshe basically said, shut up and blow the shofar already, something that equivalent. Rav pulled us back. He said, that, that's a little bit too extreme. When Rabbi Soloveitchik describes in Ishalacha that your entire lens should be halacha, and you see a bus stop, you should really see a sukkah, and you see a flower, you should really de- deconstruct the flower into halacha, consider an eye said, you have to see a flower. You have to enjoy the aesthetics of a flower. See a bus up. So he was very often pulling us back from that excessive briskerization of life. But here, the Rav is advancing towards a more prophetic stance, and Rav Lichtenstein is pulling the Rav back. Rav Arnon is saying, Rav Salvatric didn't really mean that. So to me, that was, that's the primary, the primary issue that I, of Rav Lichtenstein's uh, relationship with Zionism. I want to relate to two or three secondary issues. Um... If you ask someone in Tina, what do they own? They'll say, I own my home. I own a car. Um, I own a condo in Florida. If you ask an Israeli, what do you own? They'll say, oh, we own the Shtachim, we own this area of land. Israel is much more nationalistic and collectivistic than America or Kutzlaritz. And in that balance between individual identity and collective identity, it's a completely different experience. The national identity in Israel is overwhelming. We're going to celebrate as a nation. We'll all stand in silence. And for those minute, that minute, that's two minutes, you'll walk through the streets with its advantages and its disadvantages. And Rav Lichtenstein, I think, forced us to think about that balance and in particular, not to allow our identity to be swept up into national and collective terms at the expense of our individualism. There was a restoring of that balance, which I think in Eretz Yisrael isn't always properly calibrated. And the terms, he made up these terms. I never heard these terms before, but these terms were constantly surfacing in his sikhot. Knesset Yisrael versus Rebbe Yisrael. He had that phrase called Rebbe Yisrael, and Knesset Yisrael was the collective nation, and Rebbe Yisrael were you and me, the people in the audience. And how does Rebbe Yisrael serve at Kodesh Baruch Hu, as opposed to how Knesset Yisrael serves at Kodesh Baruch Hu? And maybe I'll, I'll leap a little bit ahead. Um, I think this is Rav Lichtenstein's contribution, to two of his contributions, not just to his Talmudim, but to the greater religious Zionist scene. When a lot of people think about Rav Lichtenstein's move to Israel, they're looking at it from a, an American perspective. This is a person who was, nom- who was designed to be the successor of Soloveitchik, and he would have been the Rosh Hashiva of Wayu, and he would have trained Talmudim that would have served as Mechanchim and Rabbanim in this country, who ended up at a certain point moving to Eretz Yisrael instead. And how different would the American scene have been had Rav Lichtenstein made that decision in 1971 to remain? I'm sure we've all thought about that question endlessly as, a, as Americans or people that have lived in the American society. 
What people don't sufficiently appreciate is how deeply he impacted the Israeli Torah world, and in two areas. Number one, the Hezder movement, which was very still nascent in 71 when Rav Luchensi moved, was being driven primarily by Rav Kook and his Talmidim. And had Rav Luchensi not moved to Israel, I don't think the Hezder movement would be what it is today, and in particular in these two elements. Number one, Rav Luchensin brought the Lithuanian world to the Hesder world. Rav Kook and his Talmidim, obviously Rav Kook was part of that world, but it was a break, and the Lambdas was certainly the type of learning was very different than in the classic yeshivas, and to, still today, and of course yeshivas, the learning is very different, and that Lithuanian flavor, as strange as it sounds to describe yeshiva Haritzion as a Lithuanian yeshiva, that's how Rav Luchensin saw his yeshiva. We would have some, we had panel discussions in yeshiva from time to time, and the discussion would be titled Gush versus Volashin. And the premise was that yeah, they're the same, same DNA, same basic idea, a couple changes here or there, how are they different? But the very title implied how Rav Luchensin saw the yeshiva. And Ravaran brought the Lithuanian world, along with others, obviously with Chaim Goldberg and others, but I think Hezer would be very, very different. I would always be, um, I'd always be, mes- I'd always be um, surprised and, and, and intrigued when Rav Luchensin, in the middle of a shir, would start quoting Yiddish. Now I know Yiddish because of my upbringing, but I can't imagine that uh, more than two or three other people in the audience knew Yiddish. And he would always say something and shout something in Yiddish, and then he would translate it into Hebrew for the, for the Israeli Bachim. And I think it was his way of bridging us back to the past, taking us back to that world, and letting us know that we were a continuation of that Masara, of that tradition, with the changes, with the reformations and, and, and the alterations that Yeshiva provided. And of course, the second aspect was this tilt towards individualism as opposed to collectivism. Um, Ravan spoke to us often about the issue of pikuach nefesh. I think it's a perfect, a perfect um, metaphor to, to split the difference between individualism and collectivism. If you apply pikuach nefesh to a state of Israel, then essentially you can never go to war because going to war will entail casualties, and pikuach nefesh is So we can't launch a war because of pikuach nefesh. So the Midchas Chinuch actually speaks about this. He wrestles with this issue. Why isn't there an Israel? Why isn't there halacha? Pikuach nefesh, derecha which should ban warfare. But what's the real answer? The real answer is pikuach nefesh is a halachic variable for an individual. So if I am ill, my mitzvah, pikuach nefesh, v'chaibram, this week's parasha is derecha Pikuach nefesh is not a halachic construct that applies to a tzibor. There are some halachic constructs that apply to a tzibor, mina melech, mina sanhedrin, melchama. Pikuach nefesh is halachim miyachin, not halachim tzibor. Who doesn't have to worry about pikuach nefesh? And that's essentially why we go to war. But Rav Luchnesi would discuss pikuach nefesh with us as part of the larger conversation of peaceful land settlements when it was still an option on the table. Unfortunately, today it isn't. But in those days, in the 90s, where people were still actively discussing peaceful land, he would raise pikuach nefesh as a concern. You can only raise pikuach nefesh if you're processing life in Israel at an individual level. If you're processing at a collective level, it makes no sense. It's completely irrelevant. And I, I, I haven't heard too many other people Certainly in the religious Zionist camp, maybe in the Haredi camp, but how many people in the religious Zionist camp raise that factor and legitimately because they're processing it collectively and nationally, and it's just not a halachic factor. Um, 
Rav Aaron would, would stress to us the dangers of, of, of collectivist national concerns. So for example, the religious parties clearly over the last 35, 40 years, their agenda has been land, settlement, politics. And there's been less attention paid to the type of societies, social equity, distribution of wealth, social causes, because land is a, is a collective experience, whereas um, social justice and social welfare tends to be addressing individual people of need. And that, that ability to view our experience more individualistically rather than collectively, to me, was, was a second. I'm just going to fast forward a little bit or a little bit out of time. Um, here's, here's the third issue. The third issue is Rav Lichtenstein's humanism. Um, Rav Lichtenstein believed very deeply in human beings. He believed very deeply in his Talmudim. He conveyed that sense of confidence. He conveyed that sense of empowerment. He had an optimistic view of humanity, of, of Tzal Melokim. And um, to me, at least, that's how I would even define his Torah Mada. I think Rav Lichtenstein's Torah Mada, and obviously there are people in this room that can comment on that better than I can, I think Rav Lichtenstein's Torah Mada was, was very different than Rabbi Soloveitchik's Torah Mada. Not having been a student of Rabbi Soloveitchik, but having read his work, Rabbi Soloveitchik compared these large systems of thought to the mind space of Judaism and halacha. So he spoke about Hegelian philosophy and its differences and similarities to halachic mind and, and Jewish thought, and crisis theology and how Christian crisis theologians, Rudolf Otto, saw God and their relationship to God in points of crisis and how Yiddishkeit sees it. And he compared Aristotle and Kant, and the sense of these large systems, the rabbis seeing the different systems of human thought, the different mind furniture, and how he could compare and contrast the two. I didn't get that feel from Rav Lichtenstein. The feel that I got, this may be a personal feeling, personal sense, is that Rav Lichtenstein's Taramada was based on humanism. What I mean is as follows. He, was, he wanted to be the best Oved Hashem he could be. But he trusted human beings so deeply that if someone had something wise and enriching and helpful to say about life and morality and personal growth, he wanted to read that and he wanted to incorporate it and he wanted to share it. I remember when his father came to yeshiva. I remember we were in yeshiva together and his father at the end of his life was blind and a little bit senile, by the way, just witnessing the kibbutz avayim. Kibbutz avayim is a mitzvah you have to see in the flesh. There's certain mitzvahs, shulchan aruch, I would say it's worthless, but it's almost ineffective. You can read Kibbutz Avayim and Shulchan Aruch from today until tomorrow until you see people being Makayim the Mitzvah. You have absolutely no precedent, no example. And we just saw the level of Kibbutz Avayim. And Rav Aaron was just so soft spoken. I never heard him raise his voice. He was so genteel and so dignified until his father came to Yeshiva and he had to help his father up the stairs. And he would shout at the top of his lungs, Achas, Shtoy, and sound like the Kongadon Yom Kippur. He was counting downstairs with his father, so he should be able to count how many stairs were there. Or remember one year, Yom Kippur, his father joined for Yom Kippur, and the entire base matters was quiet. Rav Aaron was orating and describing, and the father was a little bit off, and he was shouted in the middle of the of the speech, and he was he was he was he was, he was discombobulated. Rav Lichtenstein stopped the speech in midstream. We all sat there like statues. He sat down with his father, he calmed him down a little bit, he caressed him. And believe me, I forgot the rest of the speech or is irrelevant, but just that scene is actually in my memory, the level of Kibbutz Abba'im. So one year his father came for Shabbos. So the question was, could his father receive an aliyah? Because it's a summa allowed to have an aliyah for Kriya Satara. 
So Ravaran gave a shir Klali that afternoon, and can you have, can you not have only, of course we knew what the answer would be, sometimes, sometimes the verdict is in before the, jury, before the jury assembles, but he quoted to us as part of the share, Samson Agonisti. Samson Agonisti is a poem written by John Milton when he was in prison and was blind. So it was a poem about a blind prophet written by a blind poet, and Ravaran told us that if I want to understand my father's mind space, I have to read this because Chazal didn't describe the mind space of a blind person. Quite frankly, there are more important things to be involved with. So he just believed deeply in human beings. And that's why the people he quoted were not the classics, Socrates and Plato. He knew them, but he was quoting these very obscure 17th century Anglican theologians who opposed secularizing influences and Matthew Arnold and people we hadn't heard of. But he was searching not for comparing systems to one another, but trying to glean information that would help him be a better Ovid Hashem. And I'll bring you two proofs. My first proof is a story. My second proof is a word I never heard him use. Rarely heard him use the word. It was uh, mid-90s, and he was giving a long sicha. It was Parshas Bereshis. Now these, as I said earlier, were lengthy, lengthy sicha. Everyone's fallen asleep, hashlafen. It's Friday night. Who wants to hear two hours? It's on and on and on. And the sicha, Parshas Bereshis, is about the fall of man. So we're all listening, half nodding, half sleeping. And all of a sudden he shouts, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I'm like, our head shot up. I'm like, no. did he just quote Mother Goose? His quote? Like the Israelis came over to us after the Shear. Humpty Dumpty. Now, evidently, that children's rhyme is a metaphor for the fall of man. Who knew? All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty, Adam, the, Adam and Rishon back together again. Okay. With all humility, let me ask you the following. I guess Rabbi Adler is, is, is best equipped to answer this question. Rabbi Adler, could you imagine the rough quoting Mother Goose? Whatever sound you quote Mother Goose. It was a different feel. It's not quoting Plato, it's quoting Mother Goose. He's quoting Newt Rockney. An Irish, the coach of the Fighting Irish, because Newt Rockne taught his athletes the value of time and the value of team play and the value of moral behavior. It was a different collage of people. There's a different way of quoting it. And my second proof is I never heard him use the following word until someone pointed out to me it was very, very rare. He never used the word lahabdil. Very often when people will quote from a different realm, they'll say, Lahavdil, I don't think he felt the need to employ Lahavdil because he was standing metaphorically in Makam Kodesh, standing in front of a Kodesh Barhu, and he looked at the world around him, people who he respected, whose wisdom he admired, said he brought him into the base of Mikdash, he brought him into the Makam Kodesh. Why would you say the word Lahavdil? Why would you create a barrier? You're not walking out. Yeah. Maybe the rub probably didn't use the rub to believe it because it's just not his personality using the rub. But I had the sense that the rub was walking into the world of philosophy, studying it, and comparing it to the system of, of, of Torah. I just didn't get that feeling with the Lichtenstein. So I have to be honest, I was listening to a recording or of Rav Lichtenstein the other day, and he did use the word Lahavdil, but it wasn't about Jewish thought versus non Jewish thought. It was about the Rambam and Socrates. He was comparing personalities. <laughs> So I think referentially he felt he couldn't say the Rambam and Socrates in the same sentence without using the But when he quoted, when it was Rav Lichtenstein speaking about ideas, not Rav Lichtenstein describing personalities, never heard the word Lahavdal. So I think his humanism was a 
key core ingredient of his Torah, Umada, the way he viewed the world around him. But he also restored humanism in a world in which uh, sometimes our nationalist agenda and our desire to settle our land, uh, uh, I don't have to tell you some of the trends in the religious Zionist camp that border on xenophobia and bigotry towards the others and the respect for all human beings and the ability to see kindness and compassion in all human beings and in particular the people who are currently living in our land alongside of us who have legal rights and who we have to respect their rights as we continue our national agenda um, that was a, a, a voice in the wilderness a voice in the wilderness it was so unique I remember some of you may remember I, I was horrified but there was a uh, a panel conversation between Rav Lichtenstein, I'm sorry, I'm still a little jet-lagged, the Rav from Chevron, Rabbi Lior. Lior, right, thank you, thank you. There's a conversation in the mid-80s during, right, during the Intifada, and Rav Lior said something that it is better to allow 30 Palestinians, or to, to, to shoot 30 Palestinians rather than the fingernail of an Israeli soldier to be harmed or clipped. Rav Lichtenstein was livid, was absolutely livid, and Rav Aaron's moral indignance shown through so often as we live through Sabra and Shatila and as we live in 73 on the eve of the of the of Yom Kippur War there was a European airliner that invaded Israeli airspace and which after repeated attempts to contact the pilot they weren't able to determine whether it was a terror plane or whether it was a civilian plane so the Israeli army shot down a plane that turned out to have contained about 60 or 70 civilians who died innocently and Ravarin and Ravamital sat with Yosef Berg demanding, demanding a government inquiry. And most of the most of the population was sweeping it under the carpet. It's war. We're being invaded. We tried our best legitimately. And I, I all things being equal, I think most of us in this room would have followed suit, would have fallen in line. We tried Ravlichensin and Ravamital demanded, demanded a government inquiry. And Ravarin told us once that he was sitting in the office with Ravamital and Yosef Berg, who was very resistant. And then the phone rang, and, Yosef <laughs> and he said a few words, listened a few words, put the phone down, turned to Rav Lichtenstein or Rav Amitel and said, you will now have your inquiry. Who was it? It was Rabbi Salavechik on the line, who called Yosef Berg independently, threatening withdrawal of Mizrahi support unless they launch a government inquiry. <laughs> so I just can picture that scene. Or in 1995, when Yigal Amir assassinated the prime minister, and everyone was just, yeah, it's Asif Ra, it's a bad route, it's not reflective. Rav Lichtenstein was unflinching in his, in his um, introspective self-examination. We have to look at ourselves and look at our community. How did we produce this? Varn used to give trams to Palestinian women. In the early 70s, he would still stop and give trams until someone in the yeshiva told him it may be a little bit dangerous. And I think that's part of his legacy. Uh, I think about that a lot. The irony is, when I think about Rav Lichtenstein, and I think about him often, 90% of the time it's not about the Torah he taught us. It's not about the Chiddush and Sachem Dabav, or the Chiddush and Dabav. It's about Midos and orientation and life and marriage and parenthood. And it's the, he gave us a, a, a roadmap to life of kindness and compassion and moral rectitude and courage and drive and the traits that he gave us at the Shiva. So there were three groups who were crying more... Uh, more, more, who were shrieking. There's a lot of shrieking at the Shiva house. So one of them were the Aniyim, because the Aniyim used to line up outside of his house. And very often, Moshe, his son of Moshe, would tell me that these Aniyim would sit there, and Ravara was trying to be helpful because he was a kind person. And he would say, maybe it's time to get a job. You obviously have a lot of medical bills. Things aren't successful financially. A very kind advice. 
And these Aniyam, not knowing who they were, would start lecturing Ravar about the centrality of Talmud Torah. And they can't really get a job because after they didn't really know he didn't announce himself. And Ravar never retaliated against them. And he would write them large checks after they had chastised him for not valuing Torah enough. They write large. And the shiver, there's a lineup of Aniyam outside the door. Second person who struck me was um, the grocery store owner from Katamon. He hadn't lived in Katamon in 10 years. And he was bawling. He said, I never met a nicer person than Ravar. And the many people in my life, they hadn't learned any Torah from him, hadn't learned any Chidushim. But the third group, which was striking, were the Palestinian workers. Because Yeshiva has the, a team of workers that have worked in Yeshiva close to 40, 50 years. Eid was our Shana Aleph, so we are, he's still in Yeshiva. So Eid and I have been friendly for 40 years because when he has a child, like even Mazel Tov, when he has a grandchild. And Ravar, and evidently, every Arab Rosh Hashanah, would go over to every single Palestinian worker and personally wish them and their family Hashanah Every single worker. And it's just, they just they, they couldn't believe that this man wasn't here with us. So this humanism, and so when I, I mentioned before, when I'm on the roads, I'm very, very sensitive, as best as I can. When I get to a traffic circle, if there's a Palestinian car to my right and I have the right of way, I, I issue them and say, go ahead. Because when I pass a roadblock, uh, it's painful. It's painful to pass a roadblock. I was through to Yerushalayim, and the Palestinian, 90% of whom are innocent civilians, have to get out of the car and be humiliated and show their identity card and open the trunk and go through their bags. And we have to. We don't have any choice. It's a political statement. Just at a human level, if I can restore a semblance of dignity to a human being by giving him the right of way for a second, go ahead. I wave him ahead and say, please, I'll get to Yerushalayim two hours before you. Well, the least I can do is give you, a, you know, an extra second on the road and show you some, I'm sorry, show you some dignity. So that's the third issue. There are our restored humanism in a world in which sometimes national tendencies and national agendas can trample upon our humanistic tendencies. Finally, with this, I'll end it out a little bit later than expected, and, but this is also an important statement. Rav Luchnessy was a consummate institutionalist. He believed deeply in institutions. He wanted to participate within institutions. He saw himself as part of institutions. He was very, very collegial with Rabbanim. Every time a Rav came to Yeshiva, he showed him a lot of respect, not just his own Rabbanim. He just, I, 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 he, he believed deeply in working through institutions rather than being a maverick and, a, and an autonomous voice and a rebel and brave new ideas. And he belonged to institutions and he contributed to institutions. I remember he used to come to YU and attend these seminars. Uh, and I just said, why is the Gadol Ador who could be sitting and learning, giving shir and listening to this person's big and that person? And he come to the Orthodox Forum. He was just so deeply invested and he listened and he prepared and he asked questions. And, and why am I saying this? I'm saying this because today in Israel there's another fault line between different parts of the Datila and the community, and I, which I spoke about earlier. Unfortunately, Rav Cook's vision never materialized. Rav Cook's vision, 1948, the state will be, he didn't know 1948, but as soon as the state will be built, it'll be a national revival, hearts will be turned back to Kodesh Baruch, all the secular Zionists will be thrown, and of course, it's never happened. And I think there are two attitudes to that frustration. One attitude is, I think, the attitude of most people in this room, that secular Israelis are still our partners, we still have a common destiny, we're still working towards the same goal, and despite our differences, we have to find a way to make it work, because this is our police force, and our army, and our government, and our institutions, and our country, and essentially we're brothers, and we're working towards the same goal. That's obviously not the Haredi approach, the tonality is different, but even within the Dati Lumi world, amongst many Tamid and Rav Kook, I believe because of that frustration, there's adversarial sense that they're out to get us and they're out to strip 
um, a country of its Jewish tone, and there's a witch hunt for towers. Any time there's a position it doesn't like, it's obviously a secular Zionist conspiracy, and that's why the reforms of, uh, I'm, I'm not supporting or opposing the reforms of conversion or the reforms of kashras, but any time there's a change, this is, there's this um, um, criminalization or villainization of the other, the, the left-wing Israelis in collusion with left-wing religious Zionists, and their intentions are impure, and there's a conspiracy. Rather than just seeing ourselves as part of the same institution, remember the, the conversations that took place in the yeshiva in the yeshiva staff meetings when the army demanded that the boys spend more time in the army, which came to the course of Talmud Torah. It's very very frustrating. There's a lot of a lot of anger and a lot of resentment. And should we accede to the army's demands? Should we not accede to the army's demands? But at no point was there an us versus them mentality. At every moment is we're part of the army. This is our army. They may be lodging demands which we can or can't meet. We always invited secular politicians to come visit the yeshiva. And, and unfortunately, there's a aphasia of institutionalism today in Israel. And it's so painful to see violence directed at police and violence directed and statements. And when Smutrich issued, again, I don't like to delve into politics. It's just so embarrassing that people who are as political opponents shouldn't come to shul and shouldn't come to Davin. It's such an embarrassing statement. Don't we want every year to come to a Beit Knesset to Davin, even though they're the most far left-wing individuals? Rav Lichtenstein always built within us respect for institutions and respect for symbols of government and respect for police and respect for... And on that, I'll just end by quoting a conversation that took place between Rav Lichtenstein and Shimon Peres, which I omitted before, so I apologize. It speaks to both issues. It speaks to Rav Lichtenstein's respect for institutions, which is why Shimon Peres even bothered visiting the yeshiva, and came to Ravar and Slavaya, but it also speaks to Rav Lichtenstein's stress on individualism rather than collectivism. Shimon Peres visits the yeshiva, and he asks Rav Lichtenstein, because sometimes these conversations are just so revelatory. It's on page um, two, the second page of the handout. 1978, Shimon Peres visits the yeshiva. Please don't look at the response, just look at the question. Okay, Shore 17. He asked Rav Lichtenstein, what's the political credo of the yeshiva? (laughs) Tell me the politics of your boys. So what is Shimon Peres fishing for? Are you right wing? Are you left wing? Should we withdraw from Yamid? Should we not withdraw from Yamid? Are you into settlements? Are you not into settlements? Peres wants to take the temperature of the yeshiva. So he asked him, what's the political credo? (laughs) Listen to Rav response. It's laughable, but then you appreciate Rav even more. Number one, even when sitting in the base medrash, you have a responsibility to the community. Number two, when addressing problems, you have to think deeply, not simplistically. Number three, even when doing what is right, you have to know how to respect other opinions and the people who hold. That's not my question. I just want to know if they're right wing or left wing. That didn't matter to Ravara. That wasn't the issue. You probably political inclinations. Shimon Peretz is asking a national question. Ravara was responding in an individual fashion. And you, you pretty much clip and paste these three ideas and live your life by them. Right, respect other people, think deeply, not simplistically, have communal responsibility, balancing your time in the base matters. And it just he respected Shimon Peres, he answered him, but he answered him in ways that Shimon didn't anticipate. So um, hopefully uh, some of what I said will be in this and lighten some of the shiram that he wrote, so I think it's being published today. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a tower of uh, someone who we all had the, the big schuss to have as a Rebbe for many of us and uh, for others who have had the schuss to be deeply impacted by his life and his terror. So thank you.